Was it a, was it a challenging week for you? It was, it was for us too. God is very good. Um, you know, as we draw closer to the final crisis, um, we're going to have to exercise a faith that, um, that I hope that we're learning to develop now. I think of the words of God to the prophet Jeremiah when his heart was breaking over all the things that were happening to, to the nation, the choices they were making, and, uh, and the prophecies that God had shared with Jeremiah of what was about to happen to Israel. And, and Jeremiah was just was coming apart at the seams. He's known as the weeping prophet. And the Lord said to him, Jeremiah, if you can't run with the footmen, what are you going to do in the day of the horses? And you know, it, it's vital that we refocus and remember that we serve a risen Savior who is already victor and we're facing a foe who is already defeated. And we have to remember that. God will not fail us. Um, we have really our 17th installment today of our series on the sanctuary. And uh, the last two have been real heavy. Um, this one, not quite so much, but I still need the presence of God in delivering it. So if you would uh, join me in kneeling before the Master. And again, I'm going to ask in our prayer time if you'll pray for the speaker because he needs it as well. Our Father, how thankful we are that you have given to us what really has been very special time in studying your truths as they are revealed through the sanctuary. What we're learning here is actually part of prophetic Uh, fulfillment Um, because the only way to understand all your truths correctly really is through the sanctuary and uh, and so father we were grateful for this time you have given to us because we we recognize we are living in the final moments of earth's history that you are about to return lord jesus to take us home and 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 you're going to be coming for a for a people that uh, were informed and, uh, and that responded to that information. And we want to be of that people. And so, Lord, as we gather here, you know that I especially feel a need today for your spirit. I need you, Lord, to fill me that the people here will not see a, this broken person, but rather, Lord, will hear the voice of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that truly you'll bring to my mind Uh, exactly what you want me to say, the illustrations to use, and to you'll organize this for me as I present, that it will be sequential and logical to to the listener. I pray for all here, Father, that every distraction will be removed. You know that Satan has has given a number of us a difficult time this week, may have been all of us. And uh, Lord, I pray you'll help us to just lock in on what you're wanting to say to us now because uh, you have a message for us. So bless, Father, each of the, the folks here, some are visitors, maybe some for the first time. And may the Holy Spirit be sent to filter what is said so that it'll be, under, so it'll be understood the way you want it to be understood. So thank you for the blood of Jesus. May his, his blood wash away our sin because we need that, Father. We need that, that soul-cleansing blood. But Lord, cover us in your righteousness for we have none to offer otherwise. So please, I would like to give everyone here an opportunity now to pray for themselves and for the speaker. Father in heaven, you are faithful. Thank you, Lord. You've promised to provide all our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and we know you'll do this now. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. In our last presentation... We talked about the mark of the beast and the seal of God. And and we brought out the fact that many in the world today, be they Christian or not, know about the mark of the beast. I'm sure Holly Weird has put out many movies regarding it. 
their version. Um, but, you know, the, the seal of God gets little press, if any. Prior to that study, we, we studied about the beast of Revelation 13 and the identifying marks, and we recognized there was only one entity in history uh, that matches that description, and that was the papacy. And so to identify the mark of the beast, we had to identify the mark of the papacy. And in our last presentation, we looked at a number of Catholic sources that identified the mark of the papacy as being the papacy's ability to have changed or supposedly changed the solemnity from the seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. If you remember that, please say amen. amen. Okay. And so in, uh, in, through the Catholic sources, they acknowledge <clears throat> that that was the mark of her authority. Now, in the study of the seal of God, because God, though, there are two groups in the very end of time, one gets the mark of the beast, the other gets the seal of God. And in Isaiah 8.16, we learn that the seal of God is the law of God. <laughs> That's going to be sealed amongst the people of God. And more specifically, the seal is found in the fourth commandment, the three elements we talked about, the person, the title, and the territory. And in the fourth commandment, we find it's the Lord. He is the maker. He is the creator. And his territory is everything he has created. Everything. So what we find at the very last is that there's going to be a, a battle of loyalty between two entities, between the papacy and the day that uh, the papacy is set up to worship and God in the day he has set up to worship. And the day that we accept is where we place our allegiance. And so we studied that last week. One thing I failed to mention uh, is that historically in the United States in the late 1800s, there was a move by a number of religious uh, leaders that joined up with politicians to pass a national Sunday law. I don't know if you're aware of that. Many, many of the states today actually have on their books what's known as blue laws. You can look it up. And those blue laws are Sunday laws that prohibit work um, and, of course, uh, encourage worship. They're still on the books. Some of you have been in the South, have encountered some of this. How many of you are from the South, have encountered some of this? Yeah, and even today, businesses are closed down. And uh, one, one thing I thought was interesting is that the liquor stores closed down until noon. I haven't quite figured out how that fits into God's plan. Um, but anyway, uh, but those blue laws are still in effect. Um, by the way, I, I do have to share this story. It kind of fits in. When we were living in North Carolina, I went to visit a friend of mine that lived in Greenville, North Carolina. And this is about the time when Walmart went 24-7. How many of you remember that? A few of you do. Okay. And, um, well, it caused problems in the community of Greenville as uh, a number of the churches were asking the mayor not to allow Walmart to open up on Sunday. And, of course, the mayor was in a bit of a pickle because this is an economic situation. And so he called for a, a, a town hall meeting, and everybody came out. And, uh, and the folks that were presenting uh, keeping Walmart closed set their case. And, uh, and the mayor was in a bit of a pickle and was wondering what to do and asked if anybody had anything else to share. There was uh, an Australian man from the local Seventh-day Adventist church who was there listening to all this, and he stood up and said, Mayor, I'd like to share something. So he came up front and he, uh, he shared with them that the, the fact is that the Sabbath is not Sunday, but Saturday. And he opened up his Bible and he led the group in a Bible study. And he proved from the Word of God that the seventh day is the Sabbath. He then turned to the mayor and he said to me, Mayor, Walmart's going to be open on Saturday and I'm not going to be there because I keep the Sabbath holy. I won't be shopping on that day. So you don't have to pass a law to tell Walmart to close their doors. 
And, and of course, the mayor was rather happy with this, and so Walmart kept the doors open, but Les was not popular with the religious establishment in that community, as you can well imagine. But my friends, we are all going to face this soon. All of us are. In Europe right now, there's actually a number, uh, the European nations have Sunday laws on their books, but they're, they're not of a religious flavor. They're more of a family day flavor, and uh, in which they're... they're uh, in, encouraging closing the day or, or the, the, the shops down uh, so that people can have a family day. Of course, a lot of families have family day shopping, but anyway. Um, but but the, the, the reason I share this with you is that this is already on the books. All we need, all that's needed now is a crisis, that our world to be plunged into a crisis for this to turn religious. Are you with me? And the Bible tells us in Revelation 13 that is going to happen. And that's just before us. Uh, The groundwork is already laid for that. We also studied in Daniel 8.14 about a time prophecy. And that at the end of 2300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. And we studied how the the, the cleansing in the sanctuary pointed to the Day of Atonement. And that Israel recognized the Day of Atonement to be the Day of Judgment. And so in our study, we learned the starting point and the ending point and, and that the sanctuary would be cleansed in 1844. And we discovered that the judgment of the world began in the fall of 1844. My friends, we are living in the time of the judgment. But the big question is, is that when the judgment began in heaven, weren't the people on earth supposed to know? So what happened on earth? What happened on earth in the 1800s to let the world know what was happening in heaven? That's what we're going to be studying about today. We're going to learn that God raised up a movement, a group of reformers to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, for the judgment first, and then for the coming of Jesus Christ. To prepare a people to go home. How many want to go home with Jesus? So you have your lessons with you. And we're going to study now uh, about uh, God's end-time movement, his end-time people, his end-time church, if you will. And let's take a look at what the Bible gives us to identify this movement. Question number one. What does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? Remember, we've got to let the Bible decode itself. In uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 2, it says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate, what? A woman. So a woman in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, represents a pure woman, because we're going to find out there's another woman involved. (laughs) But a pure woman represents God's people, his church. Now, by the way, if the church is the woman, who represents the man? The groom. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Bible tells us at the very end there's going to be a wedding feast when they are united. And, um, and so, so it's a delicate woman. But we're going to find out that a pure woman, as it represents a true church, a corrupt woman represents an end-time apostate church. There are two women at the end. Remember we talked about two groups? One receives the seal, the other receives the, the mark. There's two at the end. Let's take a look a little bit more into that. Question number two. How does Revelation picture God's true church? Revelation 12, verses 1, 2, and 5 touch on this. It says, now a great sign. By the way, Revelation 12 is a fascinating uh, chapter in Scripture. Um, It gives you the, uh, the run of the great controversy between Christ and Satan from the fall of Lucifer, from the rebellion in heaven, all the way to earth's final crisis in one chapter. In broad strokes. It's a very interesting chapter, but that's what we're looking at here. Revelation 12, 1, 2, and 5 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A what? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 what? Stars. Let me stop right there. Very interesting. Um, but this is, this is the woman, I have a picture here, that, that is represented in this chapter. Pure woman. By the way, 
You will find in Scripture that oftentimes what a person wear, wore was a reflection of their character. And, and you know, it's, it kind of holds true today too, doesn't it? It really does. But this is a pure woman, very uh, modest but, but very simply dressed. And, um, and we're going to look into the symbols there for a moment. But what I want you to do is to open your Bibles and let's take a look at the other woman. The book of Revelation mentions two. This is one which represents the pure church. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17 for the other woman. You will notice, by the way, a a, a difference in dress and in conduct (laughs) uh, in this uh, depiction. Revelation chapter 17. If you're there, say amen. All right, I'm going to read, uh, let's pick up verse 1. Lots of symbolism here, but we have been explaining some of these already. has been been going along, so the picture should be uh, pretty clear. Then one of the angels, verse 1, then one of the angels of the seven... Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, come, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great what? Harlot who sits on many waters. Ah, remember your, remember your Bible symbolism. Many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so this woman... Uh, is in a highly populated area, right? And, uh, and this woman is unfaithful. She is committing fornication, the Bible says. So fornication is illicit sex outside of the marriage covenant. And, um, and she's doing it with the kings of the earth, with governments, okay? What we're seeing with this woman, remember a, a woman represents God's church, a, a, a harlot represents an apostate church. So we're seeing a church that has united itself with the government, are you catching that? This is church state. All right? Instead of getting her power from God, she's getting her power from earthly governments. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is very interesting. Let me stop there. This woman now is sitting on a beast. Remember, a beast represents a political power? All right? Now, some of you who lived on the farm, when you have a beast and the beast has a, has a rider, who's in control? The rider. The rider is, 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 is directing the traffic. One of you is from the city. <laughs> That's like me. You don't want to put me on a horse. The horse is in charge. <laughs> but typically, <laughs> typically, the rider's in control. Once again, you're seeing the combination of church and state and who's calling the shots? The woman. Are you, the harlot is. The false woman. All right. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones. Look at the difference in dress. And pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, her false teachings, and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, a name was written, Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother, interesting, of harlots of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled and was greatly amazed. By the way, this is telling us that just as in the past, there was incredible persecution of those who served God. My friends, the fires of persecution are going to be kindled again. Revelation is telling us it was in the past, is going to happen again in the very near future. And so if we cannot remain faithful in the tiny, puny challenges that we face today, if we're not training our minds to, cl- to cling to the promises of God and to claim those promises, if we can't do it today, we're not going to do it when the big test hits. If we can't run with the footmen, we're not going to run with the horses. Are you with me? So the Bible, this is, this is, these are the two competing churches here at the close of earth's history. Two groups. One gets the seal. The other will get the mark. By the way, notice that she's a mother. And she has offspring. And we're already identified this entity as, as, as the papacy. And she has, and what happened is when the reformers, stay with me, when the reformers separated themselves from the Catholic Church, came out from under the papacy, they were advancing in new light. New truths like 
the Bible and the Bible only. That's the guide of life, okay? Christ and Christ only. We don't need to go through an earthly mediator. We go through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the faith and faith only. Uh, righteousness is by faith. Okay, it's not through a church. Uh, are you with me? And uh, so what happened, though, is that when the reformers died, those who were following the reformers didn't advance beyond the reformers. There were still more truths to be discovered. But you know the old song, if it's good enough, what is that? Uh, what's the, how that song, if it's good enough for them? Yeah, the old time religion, if it's good enough, I forgot how it went. Help me. Yeah, if it's good enough for mom and dad, it's good enough for me. My friends, that doesn't work. Truth is progressive. God is constantly revealing more of himself. And we have to be willing to advance beyond those whom we've admired. Because otherwise, we're going to stay stagnant. And everything in nature, it's either growing or it's what? It's dying. And very interestingly, many of these same faiths, these denominations that presented important critical truths uh, to the world in their day cease to advance. What's happening to them now? They're, they're now pulling back into the Catholic Church. Have you noticed that? It's very interesting. They're being absorbed back in. And so, uh, so even though Babylon the Great, we understand, we've, we identify Revelation 13 as being the papacy, we have to recognize she also now has what? Daughters. We want to advance in the light of truth of the Bible, don't we? We all want to do that. All right, so let's continue now with that verse. I'll pick up again. Uh, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. She bore a male what? Child. By the way, for those of you who have the King James, New King James, the C is capitalized. Did you catch that? Who does that represent? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And it's very interesting. <clears throat> this woman uh, is described, there are three elements here, sun, moon, and stars. Did you catch that? Those are all God-made lights. Those are not artificial lights. And light represents truth in Scripture. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, represents Christ. So this woman is clothed in light of God's holy word, those truths. Now she's standing on the moon. Moon does not have its own light. It reflects light, right? It's a reflection. This is very symbolic of the role that the sanctuary plays. The sanctuary, Paul says, is a shadow of the reality, right? The moon reflects the reality of the sun, and so this woman is standing on solid ground. She's standing on the truths revealed in God's sanctuary. Remember that God gave the sanctuary to help us understand the plan of salvation. Amen? Now, this woman also has, so that represents the Old Testament. The woman also is garbed in, in, a, in, in, in a robe that is, that is light, right? What does that represent in Scripture? The righteousness of Christ, which is more clearly revealed in the New Testament. Are you following me? This is very important. And then she has the stars above her head. Now, in Scripture, anything over your head is a mark of authority. And the number 12 is very symbolic in Scripture because it represents the foundational base of the early church, the 12 disciples, right? But it also represents God's church in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes. Okay, so what you're seeing in symbolism with this woman is a combination, a mixture of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has only had one people. All based on the same truth. So very, very important. Let's go on, number three. Who is the great red dragon and what does he try to do? So in Revelation 12, a dragon is introduced. Revelation 12, 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and who? So we now know, we let the Bible decode, dragon represents the devil. You with me? If you, do, if you are, say Amen. Let's take a look at Revelation 12, 4. And the what? The dragon stood before the woman, who represents the church, who was ready to give birth to devour her child, which we know now is Christ, as soon as it was born. You know, we learned in our study 
of the Antichrist, that the power behind the Antichrist is the dragon. It is the devil. And so this is telling us here, uh, the Bible once again is pulling back the curtain and revealing to us that the devil was going to try to destroy Jesus the moment he came into this earth to pay the ransom for our sin. And the way he did it is that he was working through political Rome, pagan Rome. You remember that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that um, Herod, who was a vassal of the Roman government, sent his troops down there to destroy all the male children two years old and under in, in Bethlehem. You also remember that it was pagan Rome that, uh, that crucified the Lord of glory, right? It was pagan Rome that persecuted the early church where hundreds of thousands were killed for their faith and they died in horrible deaths. Uh, some of them, they, had, they were wrapped in animal skins and were thrown into the Colosseum where wild dogs were let loose and would tear them to pieces. Uh, sometimes they threw him in there with lions. Uh, 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 I think of Nero, who would, who would smear uh, pitch, uh, tar on these precious folks, and then would light them up as human torches as he walked through the garden at night. Uh, and I could keep going to what Rome, pagan Rome did to Christians. And these were harmless people. They were innocent. Uh, these, these people were not a threat to the government in any way, shape, or form. And, uh, but they, they were, and then later, when, pa- when pagan Rome switched to papal Rome, then uh, papal Rome persecuted and killed far more, far more than pagan Rome ever did. In fact, the estimates are somewhere between 50 to 7 million uh, members of the human family were slaughtered uh, by this entity. And that's a historical fact, which the papacy, Pope John II apologized for back in the 80s, if you remember. But... Um, but the devil, the dragon, worked through uh, not only political governments, uh, secular, but religious, uh, done as well. Uh, let's continue on here. Question number four. What happens after Satan fails to destroy uh, the child, Jesus, that we just read about? You remember? He failed to keep him in the grave. And uh, Revelation 12:5 says, and her child was what? caught up to God into, uh, and to his throne. So after Jesus' death, uh, you remember he resurrected on Sunday and after spending some time with his disciples, uh, he later went uh, to heaven to continue his work in the holy place there on behalf of his children on earth. So the devil was pretty upset about that because he couldn't get at Jesus anymore, but he did have his children here on earth so he can go after them and that's exactly what he did. Uh, number five, after Jesus was caught to heaven, caught up to heaven, what did Satan do to the church? Revelation twelve thirteen tells us, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he what? Persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And we talked a little bit about the persecution already. Um, pagan Rome uh, began to persecute the church. It was an outside job. And as uh, Rome was mowing down uh, the Christian church in an attempt to obliterate the Christian church, what happened is that more people, were, more Christians were springing up. It's like trying to get rid of re- weeds by mowing them with your lawnmower. All you do is scatter the seed. And it was Polycarp, the great old leader of the church, who uh, prior to his execution... He let the, religi- the, the establishment, political and religious establishment, know that the blood of Christians is seed. You know, the thing is, you have to realize that Rome at this juncture was pagan, and these people did not live happy lives. They were, they were burdened by pagan superstition, lived in constant fear. And they would come to the Colosseum uh, as, as entertainment to watch the Christians get slaughtered. And when they went, they watched the Christians sing until they died. They watched the peaceful looks on their faces, the forgiveness that they extended to their, their persecutors. And, and as they watched, they thought, wait a second. They began to realize that these people had something they didn't have. They had peace. They had assurance. They had hope. And, and it began to convert the pagans. They began to want 
what uh, those Christians had. And so this really upset the devil because it wasn't working. He couldn't stamp it out. So he came up with plan B. And plan B was lethal. If you can't beat them, you join them. And so the devil got baptized and got into the church. And we talked a little bit about the role of Constantine in this, where it was under Constantine that the persecution of Christianity came to a stop. Constantine was a brilliant politician. He needed to unite his government. He had enemies on the border. And uh, he wanted to put an end to this friction between Christians and the pagans. So he told his army, if you remember, he marched them through the, through the river and said, you're now baptized, you're now all Christians. And, uh, and, you know, they came into that dry pagans and they came out of that wet pagans. Um, and so what they did is they just changed some of their pagan terminology to Christian terminology And of course, most of them were sun worshippers, so it was not difficult to change the day over to Sunday. There was already a movement uh, going towards that anyway. We talked a little bit about all that. But uh, paganism came into the church, my friends, at that juncture. The church lost her purity, and she then became very popular at that juncture. It was an inside job. Take a look at number six. Where did the woman go, God's true church, during this period of persecution? And how long did it last? Well, Revelation 12, 6 tells us, Then the woman fled into the what? Wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 what? Days. Now, we know prophetically those days represent what? A year. So the church went underground. God's true church went underground because she was being persecuted. And some of you remember the stories of some of these early Protestant groups like the Huguenots from France that were completely wiped out, by the way, except for those that made it to escape into the Alps, where there was another group there known as the Waldensians. And these were faithful people that during those 1260 years of Rome's supremacy, they were keeping the truth alive. It really irritated Rome because Rome thought that she had stamped out the truth. You see, the Rome did not want the people to have the word of God because the word of God reveals the truths of God and exposed her error. Remember, truth loses nothing by investigation. Error does not want to be investigated. And so... Uh, they stamped it out wherever it came up. And what the Waldensians would do up high up in the Alps is that they had the first um, seminary, if you will. They would train people, their men, to go out, one older with one younger, to spread the gospel so it wouldn't die out. Faithful missionaries knowing it was a death sentence if they got caught. They would translate the Bible by hand and then they would get those pages and they would weave them into their clothing and then they would go from village to village as paupers, because that's what they were, selling their little wares, looking for people who showed an interest in, in the things of God and then they would open up one of those sleeves and they would share the truths and many of them lost their lives. Uh, in fact, uh, when they raised their children, they shared with their children that they may be asked to lay down their lives for the Lord, and many of them did lay down their lives for the Lord. But they kept the truth alive. The church went underground, and God kept it alive. And uh, it wasn't a visible organization at this time, but, but there were, they were pockets of resistance in the devil's program, if you will. And they were keeping the truth alive, and, the, and, and it maddened uh, the papacy as they tried to find where these groups were, and many of them lost their lives. Um, Let's continue here with question number seven. What are two other identifying marks of God's true church in the end? And this is very critical because these are two identifying credentials that quickly narrow down who this this end time group is. Uh, And in Revelation 12, 17 says, and the dragon was what? Uh, If you got the King James, it's, it's wrath. By the way, how much matter can you get than that? I don't, I don't even think that torqued uh, beat Trump's wrath or enraged. I think that, that, that's it. That's like out of control, okay? So the dragon, the dragon was enraged with the woman, God's true church, and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, and here's the description, who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to discover that the testimony represents the gifts of the Spirit and more specifically the gift of prophecy. We're going to study that down the road here. 
But, but right now we're going to focus in on the, uh, they keep the commandments of God. How many of the commandments? All of them. You know, James makes it very clear. If you, if you break one, you've broken how many? So the devil is really enraged with a group that is seeking to keep all ten of the commandments. That includes the seventh day, Sabbath. Now, friends, I want to share something with you. If the devil isn't mad at you, you better be worried. You want an angry devil on your case because if he's mad at you, it's because he doesn't have you. Now, if he's not worried about you, he's got you in his back pocket. He owns you. Are you with me? I want the devil mad at me. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried if he isn't. I want the devil to be angry with me. And so in trying to figure out who this end-type group is, we have to recognize that they're going to be keeping all 10 of the, of the commandments, including the Sabbath. They're going to have something called the testimony of Jesus, which we're going to unpack on a later date. But the thing is that if we want to be part of that group, we have to be willing to study our Bible, friends, for ourselves. Are you with me? Uh, I heard about nine of you. Listen, if, if you're not thinking for yourself in the last days, then somebody else is thinking for you, and you're going to be lost. The Bible and the Bible only is the Christian's GPS and we have to be studying. You know, when we were, uh, Suella and I, when we were raising our kids, she snapped her head because she was wondering what I was going to say. I was going with this. Oh no, it's okay, we're safe. But um, when we're raising our kids, we really encourage them to have pets. And so they kind of like found their pets around, uh, frogs and lizards And snakes, much to Suellen's chagrin, many, many, many snakes (laughs) that we would catch out in Kansas. And and sometimes animals that have been hurt, you know, rabbit, squirrel, birds. Um, But we, we, you know, we we just had fun with the kids and, and raising all these different critters. And then we went on to gerbils and guinea pigs and... But uh, when we were living in North Carolina, <clears throat> our, um, our kid, my, my kids really got after me about getting a dog. And not that I have anything, any problems with dogs, but it's just that as a pastoral family, you move around a lot and you're, and you're traveling a lot and having a dog is a big hassle trying to find somebody to take care of your dog. And, and I didn't want a dog. And so the kids kept, ah, we, Daddy, we want a dog, we want a dog. I know you want a dog, but we're not getting a dog. And Anyway, so then they, uh, they enlisted mom in their, um, in their efforts. They, they pulled out the big guns. And um, so mom began mediating on their behalf to get a dog. So I knew my days were numbered. And, um, and so one day I'm at work and Swellen calls me, George, we need to get a dog for the kids. I said, okay, I'll get a dog for the kids. She said, George, make it a small dog. I want a lap dog. And I thought, is this for the kids? <laughs> she says, uh, <laughs> I want a lap dog. Okay. So it's a small dog. So right after work, I went down to the Humane Society. And I said, do you have, um, do you have, any, do you have any puppies? They said, yes. Did they have, are, are they small? They said, yeah, part chihuahua, part uh, terrier. That sounds small. All right. So I went over, you know, tail, four, four paws, ears, wet nose, dog. It didn't matter to me. Uh, that one. So picked it up went up front to pay for the thing and they told me that they didn't take plastic. Who does that in America? I had to go get cash. So I gave the dog back, got in my car, drove to the house and as I came out, Sue Ellen was already by the door watching me to see the dog. There was no dog and so I shared with her the story and um, I had to go get cash to go get the dog. She says, what kind of dog is it? And I said, ah, oh, it's a mongrel. That's what we grew up with. It's a chihuahua and a uh, and a terrier, and she said, we're not getting a mongrel. We're getting a purebred. And of course, at that moment, I had this image of my mind of about a six, $800 dog, the kids opening the, the front door, dog running out, and the, the bus running it right over, and I, there goes $800, and I'm like, oh, no. I said, there's too much money. And she says to me, uh, no, just, I want a purebred, lap dog, make it cheap. So... I went ahead and got uh, the classifieds, and I wasn't looking at breeds. I was just looking at the costs. <laughs> and I went, ooh, that's cheap. 
that's about how much it would cost me to get something out of the Humane Society. And it said Mountain Feist. I thought, what in the world is that? So I called the guy. I said, uh, I see you're selling a dog, th- these dogs, w- Mountain Feist, what is that? And they said, well, they're hunting dogs. Hunting dogs, what do they hunt? They hunt squirrels, okay? And uh, I said, about how big is this dog get? And they said, about 18, 26 pounds. I went, eh, that's a lap dog. And I said, uh, <laughs> and I said, um, is this like a purebred dog? They said, yeah. I said, Shazam. Okay, so I loaded everybody up and we went over to pick up this dog. And uh, the dog, I thought, was really cute. had a nubby tail, and he had, like, Jack Russell ears. He kind of looked like a mixture between a Jack Russell and a Whippet. His real long, lanky legs. And, uh, and so the kids loved the dog. My wife is staring at the dog and looking at me. I said, it's a purebred. The dog's a purebred. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, so we, we went home with the dog. Uh, my wife um, reminded me a number of times in the ensuing weeks and months that I should have done my research on this dog. This dog was wired for sound. And it was just boing, 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 boing. The dog would rather play than eat or sleep. I've never seen a dog that would rather play than eat. And he just had all this energy. And so she informed me that I was fired of ever choosing another dog again for our family. <laughs> But, um, but you know, what I failed to do was do research. I was just looking for a dog. Okay? And a lot of people do the same thing with their church. They don't do the research to find out if the church they're going to lines up with Scripture. And it's very interesting. I, I did some, uh, some research here, and I'm going to share with you the, five, the, the top five reasons why people choose a church. This is research. Christianity Today. Are you with me? Number one, how close it is to their house. Nearness to the home. That's what determines it for many. Number two, they have great kids program. Kids are entertained. Hey, I'm all for a great kids program, but it better be centered in the word of God. Okay? Number three, they, they chose that church because of the music. They like the music. Really. Okay? Number four, the building looked nice. Because the building looked nice. Number five, because the pastor was good looking. That was on the study. I know that's not why you're here. But my, my point is, my friends, is that we need to make a decision based on the word of God, the truths of God's word. And so the word is telling us that God's end time people are going to keep all 10 of his commandments. And they're going to also have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at number eight. How did Jesus say that we demonstrate our love for him? And in John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. My friends, God's true end time church loves the truths of God found in the Bible. They do. You know, I shared with you how um, when, when, when paganism came in to Christianity, the word of God exposed the paganism So there was a concerted attempt to push the word of God aside. And the word of God was locked in an ancient language of, 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 uh, you know, Greek and Hebrew and also Latin. It was locked in an ancient language. And the people were uneducated. They couldn't read. And so whatever the, the church said, they said, this is what the Bible teaches. The people just had to believe it. Are you with me? The masses were easily controlled when they relied on their pastors and priests. I hope you're listening easily controlled. Well, anyway, that era became known as the Dark Ages because the light of God's word was about extinguished except for these little pockets of resistance. One of the, the nations that was the, was, to, was the only nation that was totally successful, completely successful in eradicating the word from their borders was the country of France. It was the only nation that succeeded. And so Catholicism reigned supreme in its politics. But if you study the history of France, the people of France were very oppressed people. It was not a happy situation for them. And so they finally, there was an uprising against the religious and political establishment, which history tells us today calls the, the French Revolution, right? And, and, and as a result, they swung to being atheists. Isn't that interesting? 
They didn't, if that's what God was about, they wanted nothing to do with him. Would you, do you blame them? And so, but, but, but one thing, the reason I'm sharing this with you, the year now is 1789. The countries that were Protestant countries, when they saw the revolution take place, the leadership recognized that the security of their government depended on the people having the word, that the Bible stabilized the government. As a result, they encouraged the development of Bible societies. And what these Bible societies began to do was translate the Bible into the, into the language of the local people. They began to help expedite because before, if you had a translation, it was extremely expensive. It was only the rich that had it. But these societies made it now so that the average person began to have the Bible in their hands. Are you with me? The reason why this is so significant is that now that the Bible was in everyone's hands, they began to study the Bible, began to study the prophecies of, Bi- of the Bible, and came across Daniel 8, 14. And they began to recognize that something monumental was going to happen in the middle of the 1800s. All around the world, different people, different denominations began preaching the same message. Something it's going to happen in the mid-1800s. Now, interestingly enough, these folks, many of them made the same mistake. Remember what I said that when you run into a Bible word, you have to let the Bible define it? During this time period, in the religious establishment, it was taught in the churches of the day that the sanctuary meant the earth. And so a lot of these people, as they're studying, they recognize that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. They interpreted that to mean that the earth was going to be cleansed, and, and the Bible says that the earth will be cleansed with fire, and so they un- un- understood that to mean that Jesus was going to return. So in their minds, they said, wait a second, Christ is about to return in the mid-1800s, 1843, 1844, and this began to spread. But especially did this happen in the United States. There was a, a Baptist farmer who later became a minister whose name was William Miller. And William Miller uh, began studying his Bible. He used to be a deist, but he began studying his Bible and he came across this prophecy. Anyway, long story short, he began to preach this and this spread everywhere. And the people that began to accept this, this teaching were known as Millerites rather appropriate. But the movement was not just a Baptist movement. It was interdenominational. The, the, the Presbyterians locked in. The Methodists locked in. Uh, the Congregationalists locked in. It was, a, it was a cross-denominational movement. But when the fall of 1844 came, Jesus did not return. By the way, in their study, they began to line up the calendar of the West with the Jewish calendar, and they realized that the Day of Atonement was going to fall on October 22, 1844. And on that day, they were all gathered waiting for Christ to come and take them, and Jesus did not come. If you ever study that history, you will not have a dry eye. I can't read that without, without crying. These people, their hearts were broken. They so wanted Jesus to come. Well, many turned their back on God Uh, Others uh, started time-setting in the future. But there was a small group who got their Bibles and they went back to the drawing board. And they said, okay, he didn't come, something went wrong. And they went through with a fine-tooth comb and they went through all the prophecies and when they were done, they said, yes, it all points to October 22, 1844. We got the date right, but why didn't Christ come? There was in, in... in New York, uh, Port Gibson, New York, a farmer with a couple of his friends who were in their barn praying, asking God for understanding. They were Bible students. Uh, one was named Hiram Edson. The other was a Dr. Hahn. I don't know if there's any relationship to you all. These are Hans here. And, uh, and then another was O.R.L. Cro- Crozier. And um, as they prayed earnestly, suddenly a, uh, a, a spirit of, of peace washed over them and they felt confident that God was going to reveal to them what happened. So they decided to uh, comfort some neighbors. They were walking across a cornfield and I have been there. I stood in that field. And as they were walking across the field, uh, Dr. Hahn and Mr. Crozier noticed that uh, Edson, Hiram Edson wasn't with them anymore. And they looked back and they saw Hiram was mumbling to himself 
And they, they, they came back to him and they, and, 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 and they said, what is it? He said, the sanctuary. The sanctuary is not the earth. And he quoted from uh, Paul's writings in Hebrews. He said, the sanctuary is in heaven. So they all went back and had a massive Bible study and that's when they realized Christ did not come to earth. He came to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary to begin the final work of his ministration and preparation to come to take us home. And then they, they wrote an article that came out in a local paper and others began to read it. And basically, as they began to pull together, other Bible truths began to come to the surface and one of them was the Sabbath. And, and I love the story of how the Sabbath entered the Millerite movement. And it, it happened in a little church in um, uh, New Hampshire, Washington, New Hampshire. And the pastor, a elder Wheeler, was preaching a sermon on the Ten Commandments, on being loyal to God and keeping his commandments. Anyway, there was a lady in the audience. Her name was Rachel Oaks. And Rachel Oaks was from the denomination, uh, the Seventh-day Baptist. And so when Wheeler was done, and standing by the door as we pastors do, shaking hands, Mrs. Oaks walked up to him and said, Pastor, that was a powerful sermon. It'll be a wonderful day when you keep the, the Ten Commandments. You think that got that pastor's attention? Uh, they had a Bible study that afternoon, and Pastor Wheeler recognized that the seventh day was the Sabbath. He then shared it with his congregation in the ensuing uh, weeks, and the entire congregation embraced the Sabbath. And it was through that church that the Sabbath entered the Millerite movement. You know, one day I hope to re- meet Sister Oaks. She has no idea what impact her witness had on God's end time movement. She was faithful, faithful lady. And, uh, but, but that's the story, my friends. And out of that uh, came a movement that is spreading throughout all the world. Let's unpack this some more. Number nine, what three angelic messages will God's end time church be preaching? This is very simple. Uh, many of you have come from other churches. I came from the Catholic church. I never heard any of this preached. Uh, the first thing is fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his what? His judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So this movement, this church is going to be preaching about the judgment taking place already. Are you with me? Revelation 14, verse uh, 8. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is what? Is fallen and is fallen, the great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of her wrath of her fornication. So, what, what this angel is telling us is that the majority of the religious establishment is going to reject the message of Angel One. They will not believe that the judgment has already begun, that there is a sanctuary in heaven. They're going to reject it. As a result of that rejection, enter Angel Number Three, the most fearful warning of all of Scripture. We studied this last week. Revelation. 14, 9, and 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, ooh, how do you worship the beast? And his image, and, and receives his what? His mark. That's how you do it. On his forehead or on his hand. We talked about that. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And so those who receive this mark are going to incur the wrath of God, which we know will be revealed in the seven last plagues. I don't know if you realize this, but, but that, that was prophesied. That message would be given. And in the time that we have been here studying this together, that message has been given. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Do, do you realize that? You're actually part of Bible prophecy. I, I want to let that sink in. Now how we respond to what we're hearing is critical. And it'll determine which group we end up with either the sign or the mark. Very, very important. Let's take a look here at number 10. To whom will God's church preach this messages? Revelation 14, 6 says, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell where? On the earth. To how many nations? Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So whoever this remnant is, they're going to be found all around the world. And they're going to be preaching the same message. This also tells us that whoever this remnant is, they're going to be organized. You can't do a work like that without organization. Number 11. What specifications has God given in his word to help us positively identify the end time church? Revelation 12, 17. We read this already. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring 
who keep the commandments of God and have the what? The testimony of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do is go through these identifying marks quickly. You can go home and study them or, uh, on your own. This is what we did also to identify the papacy. Number one, it says that it will appear and do its visible work after its emergence from the wilderness after 1798. After the papacy's power is, was, was brought down, the word of God was made available to everyone. So this church would reappear after the persecuting power of the papacy was brought to a halt. Number two, it will teach the same truths as the apostles taught. You remember the angel? I mean, the, the woman that we saw in white represented both the Old and New Testament. So the truths that this, this church, end time church is going to teach is going to be the same exact truth that the disciples and Jesus believed. Are you with me? What day, by the way, did they go to church? On Sabbath. So we know that's going to be part of it. Uh, And all of its teachings will agree with the Bible. Number three, it will keep the Ten Commandments, including the Bible, Sabbath. It will have the spirit of prophecy, and we're going to unpack that one at a later study. Number five, it will proclaim God's three end times messages, the three angels with a loud voice. Number six, it will be a worldwide movement and yet relatively small. Number seven, it will teach the everlasting gospel, which is salvation through Christ alone. And my friends, when you pull that all together, there is only one church today that's doing this. And that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's the only one. No one else. There is not a group out there that meets with the seven qualifications. Are you with me? Now, that doesn't mean just because your name's on the book, you're automatically in. We have to be faithful. Isn't that right? I mean, in the Old Testament, God's people were the Jews, right? Were they all faithful? No. They had the correct information. They were in the right church, but they didn't yield their hearts. And that has to happen, doesn't it, for us as well. Let's take a look at number 12. Jesus gives you these seven prophetic identifications, uh, points, and then says, go and find my church. What does he promise regarding your search? Luke eleven nine says, seek and you will what? Where do you have to search? In the Bible. Okay, now listen to what I'm going to tell you. Not the internet. If you, if you let the internet do your thinking, you, you are lost. The internet, is the internet inspired of God? Is the Bible inspired of God? If you want to know truth, where are you going to have to search? And you know, look, I think we can all agree that the devil has more to do with the internet than God does. You know, I, I tell people this. I said, look, if you, lived, if you lived in the time of Noah and the internet existed then, if you lived in the time of Noah and Noah was saying it was going to rain uh, and the whole world would be flooded and he's building a boat on dry land, largest boat ever, and, uh, and you went to the internet to see if it was true, what would the internet have told you? They would have said he was a fruitcake who builds a boat on dry land. It would have said, look, rain has never fallen from the sky. This is like, this is like an impossibility. This will never happen. Don't listen to this guy. If you listen to the internet, you have just lost your life. You're going to drown. Are you with me? If you lived in the time of, uh, of Jeremiah when he said that the Babylonians were coming or Isaiah, the Assyrians, if, and Babylon. If you lived in that time, if you went to the internet, what would the internet have told you about these guys? That they were false prophets. That's what they would have. They would have been all kinds of write-ups on how these guys are false prophets. If you, if you lived in the time of Jesus and here was this humble carpenter from Nazareth saying that he is the son of God, what would the internet have told you? It would have, you would have seen the religious establishment, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the, the Caiaphas saying, this guy is possessed by demons. And if you believed him, you just lost your soul. My friends, do not use the internet to determine truth. You're going to be lost. You're going to have to use the word of God. Don't, even, don't believe your pastor. Believe your Bible. Are you with me? Don't believe the internet for pity's sake. Don't let somebody else do your thinking for you. Okay, we search in the word. Number 13. How many church organizations in the world fit all of these seven points? Uh, Ephesians 4 or 5 says, one Lord, one what? One faith. 
one baptism. And when you line it up, there's only one denomination in the last days. But I want to share something with you. The Seventh-day Adventist church is more than a church. It's a movement. It's a movement that's made up of people from other denominations who have found the truth and have embraced it. I'm just curious. How many here come from the Catholic background? Raise your hand nice and high. All right. How many here come from Baptist? Raise your hand high. How many here from Methodist? Raise your hands. How many here Presbyterians? Raise your hands. How many here from another denomination? Raise your hand. So everybody raise your hand that came, came in from somewhere else. Nice and high. This is a movement, my friend, interdenominational movement. People who are recognizing the truth and are coming in. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. The majority of God's people are still out there. They haven't seen what you're seeing. But their salvation is in jeopardy because there's a crisis coming upon the world and they're not ready for it. They need to hear the truths that you and I are learning about here and now. Very, very important. So God does have an organized body. By the way, right now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is growing at a rate of a million members a year. There's about 20 million, it's a little over 20 million right now. And uh, only 7, 7, 8% of them are in the United States. The majority of them are around the world. Uh, it, they have the largest medical and educational system of any denomination with the exception of the Catholic Church have the largest. They're all around the world. Right now, I, I'm trying to remember how many nations. That kind of changes from time to time. I think there's like 230-something nations around the world. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a presence in all but five. And the reason it doesn't happen in those five is because it's a death sentence to be a Christian in those nations. There are, nobody has a presence in those nations. If they do, it's underground. And so what the Seventh-day Adventist Church is doing is they have a radio program called Adventist World Radio that's transmitting into countries they can't get into and also the internet. And, and we're getting emails of people in Saudi Arabia in, in, these, in, uh, in these various nations that are saying they're accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen. So the, the message is going all around the world. By the way, in Matthew 14... Uh, where Jesus is talking, uh, no, Matthew 24, where Jesus is talking about the last days. Matthew 24, 14, it, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall, shall, preach, shall be preached throughout all the world as a witness. And then the end will come. My friends, it's almost over. It's almost over. We are almost home. It is a worldwide movement. It is Christ-centered. It is organized. Number 14. Once a person discovers God's true end-time church, is it necessary to become a member? Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord did what? Added to the church daily those who are being saved. My friends, if you've ever had a fire and you see an amber pop out, it glows red, then what does it do? It dies out. We're a family, my friends. You know, when a baby is born, a baby is born into a family, right? And when we are born again, we, and we're babes in Christ, we need to be part of a family. We need to grow together. Are you with me? If, if uh, you know, if you look at those uh, safari movies, those are programs uh, in nature, it's the, it's the animal that separates itself that the, that the lion picks off. Are you with me? We need to come together. So yes, we are to be part of, the fa- of God's end time organization. Number 15. How many ways of escape were there in Noah's day? Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah prepared 26 arks for the saving of his household. Was it 75 arks? Maybe it was 527 arks. One ark. If you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be protected from what was coming, you've got to be in the ark that God had built. Are we listening? God has an end time movement, my friends, and we want to be part of that movement that's getting ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number 15. Since there are many faithful Christians in other churches, and since God has only one true remnant, what will happen to the sincere Christians? Okay? And uh, John 10, 16 says, words of Jesus, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear what? my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, there are people right now in, in, in our sister churches around who are studying their Bible and are living up to all the light they have. Everything they study, they see God says this, and they're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Their hearts are yielded. So when God presents to them the Sabbath, when God presents to them the heavenly sanctuary, they're going to go, oh, it's right there. Yes, Lord. But listen, my friends, just because we're in here, we can end up saying, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. 
And when the crisis hits, we're going to say, no, Lord. How vital it is that we uh, say, yes, Lord, and yield our hearts to his wonderful, benevolent leading. Revelation 18, 2 and 4, he says, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. God has people out there, sincere, and he loves them. But he's given a message to this church to share so that they'll come out when they see the rest of the light so their salvation will not be lost when the crisis hits. We have got to share them. Come out of her, my people, least you share in her sins and least you receive her plagues. My friends, are you excited? The Lord is coming. In our next study, we're going to study about the second coming. That's going to be our study. You know, one time I was in a series and I wasn't, I tend to say things that I don't process very well. My wife will tell you this. And I told the group that, in, that next week, next week is the second coming. And, and there was this collective gasp. I didn't know what I had said. I was like, what's going on? Then I realized uh, my kids weren't happy with me because they wanted the Lord to come. What don't we? We want Jesus to come. And so my friend, we're going to study the second coming next week. But you and I have a job to do before that and to share with others not only what's coming, but who's coming. So our last question. Jesus invites all people to follow the truth of his word, to enter into a knowledgeable and dynamic love relationship with him that will enable them to keep the commandments of God through the power of the indwelling Christ. He invites all to become part of the remnant people of Bible prophecy who are extending this final warning message to all the world. Jesus is calling you today to enter the safety of his great end-time church Will you respond now to his call? How many are willing to respond to his call? You know, I want to share something. The Bible refers to this group as the remnant. And any of you who have done any work with cloth know that a remnant is a cloth that's similar to the main bolt. And so the end time church of God is going to be similar to the, to the church in Christ's day, the early church. Same teachings, my friends. May God prepare us for a soon coming and through us prepare others. Oh, Father, how blessed we are that someone knocked on our door one day and presented these truths to us. And Father, we have an opportunity now to return that debt that we owe and to share with someone else, Lord, the hour is late. Father, soon the crisis will break upon the world. Oh, Lord, help us to be in your word, to make your word our compass, not what the pastor says, but what the word says, to know it for ourselves so that others don't think for us. And Lord, warn us, warn us about going to the internet, Father, for truth instead of going to your Bible for it. We're gonna be swept away by every wind of doctrine if we do that. Lord, we know that you're coming. We wanna meet you in peace when you do. And we want all of our loved ones and family and friends to be ready and with us to go home with you when you do. Thank you. Bless all here today as they head for home. And I pray too, Lord, that you will bless richly the baptism this afternoon. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.